0: We are in the middle of a series focusing on some of the more troubling passages in the Old Testament that sometimes create a stumbling block for us. For the last couple weeks, we've just been asking a specific question. How much does the law apply still to Christians? And I think that we're kind of done answering that. I'm not going to even recap it tonight because we've spent quite a bit of time on it. But it did leave a very important question. For example, last week we were looking at the Sabbath and how it was characterized in the Old Testament, how it might have been modified or changed after Christ fulfills the law, and kind of how we practice it. Now that we're done with our two bookends of maybe addressing how much does the law apply to Christians, now we've got to do the harder task of going back into the Old Testament to deal with, well, how did God deal with those people? So I've kind of used this image of us kind of wading slowly from the shallow end of a pool into the deep end, the deep end being the issues of, what we're gonna see ethnic cleansing and killing. Right now, we're about like waist deep, maybe neck deep at this point. As we start to deal with some of the harsher issues in the Old Testament, so this is kind of a roadmap of where we've been and where we're going on the screen in front of you. Tonight, we're dealing with some of those harsh laws of the Old Testament, and let me remind you of a couple of them. Last week, we ended here. So according to the uh, Old Testament, you could be put to death for striking your father or mother, kidnapping a person, Cursing your father or mother, doing work on the Sabbath, committing adultery, both parties killed there, being a medium or a wizard. So those people are going the Harry Potter thing, you're done. back Let's stop and pray for Jolene's salvation. So being a medium or a wizard or blaspheming the Lord, all of which were subject to the death penalty. So let's move forward a little bit tonight now that we kind of have in mind some of the different things that you can see. I've cited most of those from Exodus 21, Exodus 31, Leviticus 20, and Leviticus 24. Here's the question I want you to look at. How do we understand God's character when we read that he would order the killing of someone who broke the Sabbath? Just focus on that narrow question. Forget all the other things you could be killed for. Just focus on that. How do we understand God's character in that situation? Maybe a point that drives it home even more to us right now is How do we relate to God today when we see this characterization of God and we ourselves do such a poor job of observing the Sabbath? Let me be clear. I'm not going to do a talk on the Sabbath. I'm just picking out this example because we used it already a number of times and we should be familiar now with how God dealt with the Sabbath, how Jesus deals with the Sabbath. And I think most of us pretty much know that our habit of keeping the Sabbath probably pretty poor. But I'm not here again to try to address your poor keeping of the Sabbath. I'm actually trying to address something much deeper than that. How do you relate to God when we right now think, yeah, what do I do with that? What do I do with a God who was serious enough to make this command, especially when I myself now don't think much about the Sabbath? Were the Israelites held to a different standard? If so, wouldn't God be somewhat arbitrary? Would he be unfair? Or are we just kind of so clued out that we don't realize how seriously God wants us to take something like the Sabbath? So let me show you some things first I want to mention. In the last couple weeks, we've been really going after some difficult passages in the Old Testament. I want to just correct it for one moment with a counterpoint. There are a lot of great things about the law and especially the way that God dealt with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, this series is not going to go into them. This series is not going to show us all the great things that happened. But I do want you to know that they're there. So I'm going to make just a couple points to show you what I mean by that. For example, let's look at the issue of slavery, which we've done a little bit already. I wrote on the screen that slaves had a radical, unprecedented amount of legal and human rights. There was a command to treat them as humans and to look after their own interests, not just the interests of their masters. Uh, You might think, wow, that doesn't seem very progressive. But for that time, that was incredibly progressive. What I'm trying to point out is the law was a huge improvement on what people thought at the time. And the reason I'm making this point is I don't want us to think that everything in the Old Testament is just negative. We're focusing on the negative passages because that's what trips up Christians. But I at least think we should have a corrective to remember that there was so much that was positive, uh, maybe better than positive, unheard of. Uh, to help people come closer to what God intended. And we said it was an incremental step. It was not the final step, but it was somehow gracious to bring people along slowly from where they were. Here's another point. Just the condemnation of kidnapping, or a better way to understand it is trafficking in humans, was punishable by death. So you might think, well, that's, is that important? Yeah, compare it to our own times. Compare it to the South. During the American South in the 19th century, where trafficking in humans was allowed, trafficking in humans was actually something that was rewarded handsomely. So before we get on the idea of like, man, those people were just so backwards and their culture was so backwards, that might have been true about the Near East. But the law was a massive improvement in a lot of people's understanding of God's ethics and morality. And we've said the ideal was everyone being the way we were supposed to be in the original state in the garden. We fell from that very quickly. But it's important to note that God is starting to correct people, not just in small steps. These were huge steps, just maybe not as big as we'd like them to be, until we remember our own sin. And then we start realizing, wow, our laws are not that much better. Yes?
1: Um, I'm just trying to understand that how it is that trafficking humans or slavery is punishable by death, but then we have laws governing slavery. But every Israelite that owned a slave should then be dead?
0: Well, the difference is most of the slavery that was practiced in Israel was debt or bond slavery. And that is a different thing. Right. Somebody was in debt. Right. Yes, there was conquest slavery. There was some of that. We would have to divide. Is that being prescriptive or descriptive? But the thing that's very interesting is the prescriptions, the law, the commandments assumed that these were debt slaves who were indentured because of their poverty and you'll notice they were supposed to be released. It was not an interminable slavery. It was for a set period of time and then all debts were to be forgiven including bond slaves uh, unlike American slaves for example who were never to be released.
2: Of
1: slavery they were talking about with trafficking as if you were like to kidnap and sell people as slaves or like debt or indenture.
0: Right and look at the third point the law commanded safe harbor to slaves, like if they ran away. While nearby codes demanded they be killed. If you were a runaway slave and you were caught, you'd be killed. Under the law, if you received a runaway slave, you were supposed to help them and give them safe harbor because they were probably a slave that was not a bond slave, right? Again, contrast that with our laws in the 19th century. Contrast that with the fact that our US Supreme Court said that no, slaves were property, not people and you had to return them to their masters. So I'm trying to make those points because sometimes we have this impression that people just lived as barbarians and some codes were pretty barbaric. You could get your hand chopped off or, your, or some body part chopped off. The law comes along and it's a huge, tremendous, unheard of advance in the law. But again, it's not complete for a number of reasons we've already discussed but I'm just trying to shed positive light on the law because we've been picking apart some of the difficult things and I think that that would give you an unfair view of what was going on. You could say that 80% of it was this huge advancement forward. We're just gonna focus on some of those that trouble us today. And if you read some of those testimonies in the back, cause people to just walk out of Christianity when they don't understand them. Jolene. I was, I was just
2: gonna add to it and say that, well, weren't there also um, certain, like certain ethics like, on how you would treat your slave? I mean, in some cases, the bond slaves or the, you know, the debt slaves, when they were finished serving their time, they, they wanted to stay with the family and they would nail their earlobe to the doorpost and say that they're now bound to this family forever because they loved them.
0: Well, in the law, when you forgave the slaves at the forgiveness of debt, you didn't just let them go. You gave them a portion of what you owned. So it was a way to actually say like, you've served me, right? which is close to the kind of form of employment we have, You've served me and the law commands I set you free. And now not only will I set you free, but I will give you a portion of my flocks and my cattle and those things so that you can go forward and now prosper. What's interesting, though, is there's never been a recorded instance in the scriptures of Israel actually obeying those commands, which is why God brings so much judgment later repeatedly through the prophets, because even though he set up this great system, Our wickedness is greater even than what he's commanding here. Let's go to another thing. Just two more points real fast. The law introduces lex talionis, which is the proportionality, the eye for an eye standard. Before this, if you caused injury to somebody, they would just kill you. There was no proportionality. The law introduces proportionality and... What's interesting is the proportionality was never actually meant to be taken literally in in cases of normal bodily harm. What that meant is if you read the law very carefully, it says if someone injures you in this way, you compensate them. You don't actually take their eye. You don't take their hand. You actually ask for compensation in return. It's only in the killing and very importantly, the intentional killing, that there's any kind of capital retribution. This is so huge because our entire area of law, even to this day, is influenced by this. This is a huge, unheard of advancement. Again, God saying, look, the way that this whole human experiment and law is developing is not what I intended. Let me give you the law, and this is much closer so you understand it. Did you have a comment, Morgan? Yeah, I
3: was, I think it goes even further with um, <clears throat> if somebody hurts you, what would usually happen is that family would attack your family, and then you could start like having either of what you mentioned.
0: And here it was a way to stop it, right? So first of all, many of us think that when Jesus says, "You've heard that eye for eye and tooth for tooth," that they were in the Old Testament, literally with a knife going, "Come here, come here, let me get that eye out of there," and just you know, actually, that's not what the law says. It was stated in the colloquial; it was not actually stated in the law that way. So this is a huge advancement. Here's another one. Just the idea that there could be killings that were not intentional and that they should be punished differently. Or that if you accidentally killed somebody that you could run to a city of refuge which were set up all throughout the land for you to find shelter so that you would avoid that revenge. You would avoid angry mobs. You would avoid like just emotional retribution. Again, unheard of. If you even injured somebody, you could be killed under most codes at the time. Here, it was not only setting up proportionality, it was even saying that when you accidentally kill somebody, there's a difference because you didn't mean it. And you should not be killed for that. You could go find refuge. So there are many, many other examples I could put up here. I'm not going to do that. I just want to point out that I feel like in, in good conscience, you should know that there are a lot of things that the critics of the Old Testament never cite because they're too good but we are focusing on those things that the critics cite because of the things that trouble our faith. Yes?
4: I would even venture to say, going back to slavery for a minute, and this is controversial because we're American, and so freedom is like the number one It's up there as like the top value of Americans is freedom. But I think that we could venture to say that if the Israelites looked at how the poor were treated in our country, they would say our slavery is so much more humane than the way that you treat the poor of your society. Are you kidding me? You take your employees and you barely give them enough money to eat you don't ensure that they have a place to live, you don't take care of them at all. Like In some ways, I think it's, we have a stigma against slavery in this country and we don't really look at how people are being treated and how in some cases it might be better than how the poor are treated in our society
0: today. In our Ephesians series, we covered that part where under mutual submission, slaves and masters were supposed to relate to one another. And we talked about this specifically, that while the Old Testament standard may be a little bit further away than where we'd like it, By the time you get to the New Testament, we are expecting Paul to just free all the slaves. But he says something even greater than freedom, which is you'll submit to one another. Like the slave, of course, we understand their role. But the way that the master is going to respond is basically, again, unheard of for his time. And one of the things I pointed out during that series is slaves could be more educated than their masters. Slaves could own slaves. They could buy their freedom. Some people volunteered to be slaves because it would better their status in life if they went into, I don't want to call it an internship because it was harsh, (laughs) right? But if you were so down and out that you couldn't feed yourself, volunteering to become someone's slave could actually elevate you, teach you skills, and eventually you'd buy your own freedom and go off and and use those skills yourself. Uh, I'm not making slavery into something glorious. But we always look at it one way. And I don't think we ever look at how we do it, right? So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so. Summarize that for people who just tuned out, kudos to the law. There we go, right? There are a lot of good things about it. I don't mean to bash it. Now let's go talk about the more difficult things. Let's talk about God as an executioner. I'm going to give you three examples, and I want you to tell me about how you feel about them. In Leviticus 9.23 to 10.2, we see this story. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The background here is the Lord's ark is in the tabernacle, and it travels around to where the Israelites are encamped. And here we have these two who are the sons of Aaron, by the way, the high priest. His two sons... They're part of the priestly class. Aaron's sons offer what we know as unauthorized fire. And so because they don't worship the Lord correctly or in the authorized manner, they're immediately consumed by fire and die. Hold that thought and tell me how you feel about it in a moment. I'm going to give you another one. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's the third one. This time we see David bringing the ark of the Lord back supposedly on the way to Jerusalem originally. And so here's how the story goes from 2 Samuel 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, and the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim of the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakhan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What was Uzzah's sin? He saw the ark kind of start to wobble because the oxen were stumbling and he just put his hand out to hold it so it didn't fall over and he died. So, picking sticks on the Sabbath, touching the ark, or you can go back to just having some unauthorized fire. Bzz. You can pick any one of the three, Monique.
1: Well, when it comes to like God's holiness, like total holiness, just my viewpoint. I honestly have no problem with it. Like because He is so holy, if you went to His presence in an unauthorized way, I, I get it. Okay, you died. I get it. That's cool. Fine, I'm good with that. Um, same thing with touching um, the Ark of the Covenant. Fine. Like I'm good with that as well. I'm even. Almost good with okay I'll just say I'm good with putting the guy to death for picking wood on the Sabbath as we talked about last week how it has to be kind of like a bigger picture there's got to be a reason that the law pointed to Christ and consistency what I'm not good with is that there's even laws on how to slaughter animals in a humane way so they don't suffer but that it was commanded that this man be stoned to death by the whole community Especially how we talked about the verse last week about God desiring um, mercy, not sacrifice and all of that. So that's what kinda like uh like I know we deserve to die, but let's just say we're good with that, but why in such a violent manner?
0: So you're okay with the
1: It's like instant fire consumption, you're done. Like I you know, and again with God's holiness, like I get it, I completely understand it and He created us, we're his, He's holy, like if we do things wrong, we die, that's fine, take my life, it's his anyways. I just, the thing that kind of a little bit irks me is like those commands that seem to be kind of more violent or beyond just like taking your life because it's just, but that like it's painful and, you know, maybe for a murderer or like something like that, but.
0: My only quibble will break right now that, I don't know, burning from fire doesn't seem like <laughs> any <laughs> less. If you gave me a choice, I might take the stoning over the being burned alive. Jolene.
3: I
2: mean, um, like I hear what you're saying. The the whole thing about the animal thing, I guess the difference between humans and animals is that we're sinners. <laughs> like, like we're, we're sitting against God's law.
0: So you're okay with a God who treats pigs better than he treats humans?
2: If he told the pigs not to do something and they did it anyway, <laughs> then I'm pretty sure sense. I'd be okay with, he, with him stoning them too. Bacon. Let's say we're not okay
4: with this. Let's mm-hmm. say this is not okay. Let's say we're going for consistency. Why was King David not struck down for murdering the husband of a woman that he slept with? Where is consistency with that? A man picks up some sticks on a Sunday and he's dead, whereas the king of Israel be. commits murder?
0: Wait but Can we take your example? Let's stay there. So let's be clear. David committed adultery and murder. We stated earlier that under the law that if you committed adultery, you should die. He murdered the husband, and he slept with the wife, right? So, I mean, he's got two reasons he should be killed. Now, when you see that David isn't killed, but the guy picking up sticks, or the guy who tries to steady the ark, who's right there in front of David, by the way, and interestingly, footnote, David was angry with the Lord for striking that guy dead. Uh, that's the next verse in, uh, in 2 Samuel 6, 8, is that, that David is upset with the Lord. I don't want to oversimplify your argument, but as part of it, like, that's not fair. Or is it, I want God to be consistent in every case?
4: I want to find some sense of order in order to see how these stories are supposed to teach me how to live my life today.
0: Okay, Randy? Well, he did have a point, though. I mean, uh, the baby that he had with Bathsheba did get killed. I mean, God took it got
1: sick and took his son. He did have consequences. He prayed for them not to happen, but, like, God still took his son. And I mean, there were, there were consequences. His life wasn't taken, but...
0: But aren't we troubled by the fact that, like, David commits this double heinous act and the poor kid's the one that dies? I have a problem with the poor guy just trying to hold on the Ark from falling. <laughs> holy. Yeah, but he I had good intentions.
3: He, he wasn't like, oh, I'm going to touch this and give okay. magic powers.
0: Talk to me about good intentions. Like, why does that matter?
3: Because maybe he respected that it was holy and he didn't want it to fall and get uh, desecrated. Wasn't the problem God's with the way it was being... Him transported? Because wasn't
4: there specific instructions to, like, it has to be carried with the poles and stuff? Yeah. So they put it on a cart. Who cares if it's new? It's being pulled by an ox. And
0: I wonder what would have happened if he had just seen it about to fall and just stood back and just the whole thing Hi. went <laughs> <laughs> like, I wonder what that story would have looked like. Would it have looked like Raiders of the Lost Ark where everybody's heads explode because the Ark <laughs> fell over? Like, what would happen? Alright, uh, Monique, and then we're going to go to Abby.
1: Um, Here's a point of consistency, since we're talking about consistency, something that tends to be overlooked, which I think is actually kind of beautiful. If you want to talk about consistency, God himself bent to these laws. God, who is perfect, who did nothing, allowed his life to be taken as payment for our sins, because that is what the law commanded, that we die for those sins. So there's beauty in that, and I always remind myself that, like, When you're thinking, God, it seems harsh, he applied the same measure to himself, who is perfection. So for me, that's like all the consistency wrapped up in one. It's like, yeah, maybe you spared some humans and some not, but you didn't even spare yourself when it came to sin. So that's pretty consistent across the board.
0: We're going to address this point that Monique is making, not the specific one, but one of the critiques that comes up is there are some people who are too quick to let God do whatever he wants because he's God. And, I can, and I'm not saying Monique is saying that, she's coming close, but most of your faces are saying that's exactly what she's doing. Like some of you are like, don't buy it. And I'm gonna address some of those next week, so hang on to that about the, are we sometimes too quick to let him off the hook, or do our answers ring hollow when we just say, well, God is God and he's holy, he can do what he wants, does he have some sort of divine immunity? Abby. The question
4: that I guess um, is I can understand not that I support but I can understand God striking down people um, but why would he command or why would he use humans to inflict that on someone else period and isn't that setting up a pattern to follow like why would he set up a faulty pattern you know like this nation go kill this nation or you know things like that like anytime that he's using like people as an instrument of it like it seems as though like he would know that we're fallen so that we would do these same actions in acting out of our own desire to punish people like doesn't he know that doesn't he know that we're going to misuse what he tells us to do for the I guess for him
0: okay by the way we don't get freaked out when God uses us to spread the gospel which he could do better than we could he could just announce it from the skies we wouldn't even need any proof We don't get freaked out when he causes us to go heal people when he could do it better. We don't get freaked out when God uses us to love one another or to feed one another because he could do it so much better. It's true that God uses humans way more than, this is my opinion, than he should. At the same time, we do get freaked out when we flip that around and see that God uses one nation against another or uses a leader like Moses and Aaron to tell the people to go do something to someone else. Yeah, then we do get a little bit freaked out. Uh, But God does use people. So part of the answer is, yes, he could do it himself. And there are times when he does do it himself. The majority of times though in scripture we see that God uses people. And I think it's a privilege that he would even include us in the first place, in anything at all. But we're seeing kind of the flip side of the coin that makes us uncomfortable. Morgan?
3: speak to stoning I think um, I have actually heard defenses of just the sense of you know there are people here uh, you know in our country that are like super big on the death penalty you know like two thumbs up just kill them right and it's real easy to say that when we don't have to take part in it in any way we don't have to see it um, where if you were a part of stoning others that would be an awful process for me it's a part of the community right so I mean there is this built-in um, we don't want to be a part of this. We, we don't want this to happen to fellow brothers and sisters. Um, it becomes a mechanism that makes these offenses very near, where, where it would cause you to reflect. It would cause, you, I mean, so it's not to say that makes all sense of stoning. But hey, if you're going to be a proponent of the death penalty, you actually have to be a part of executing it, and, mm-hmm. and, and then saying, "Wow, I don't want. Obviously, I don't want this executed me or my family or anyone else. Um, I don't enjoy taking part of this." Uh, this is a, you know, so I mean, it's a built-in system there. Um, As far as the David issue, like, I think, I mean, I don't want to say, well, God can do whatever God wants, but we certainly, it's certainly showing how God does give some people favor, right? I mean, there's clearly a chosen nature to who David was, to the very Israel itself. There, There seem to be these things where God, when he gives a symbol or a metaphor, it's not just like a flood, like we... We don't care much about analogies. Like, we'll take them if they they sound nice, but God apparently, things like circumcision, things like Sabbath, things like, you know, this is my chosen king who I will be faithful to, um, those type of things that God takes very seriously to the point where justice is even executed slightly differently than it is for other people. I mean, that surely seems to happen with David because he he should have died under under the law for both offenses.
0: Okay, Heather? I'm
5: still
6: troubled by it. But I would say that God has never been fair, good or bad. And so I think that it's a flaw in our thinking to try to manipulate him to be fair. Because he's not fair with grace, and he's not fair with punishment in the Old Testament, obviously. But I think also, like, and again, like, I'm not okay with these stories, but is death the worst punishment?
5: Mm. Did
6: David suffer more because he wasn't killed for it? And, like, that's just a question that I would ask, is, like, we think that death is the ultimate thing, but honestly, it's kind of a lack of faith. And I have the same issue. You know, like,
5: we don't know what the
6: afterlife was. We don't know what it. We, we don't really know what it is now. Like, we have ideas about it. But certainly we can't go back and say we know what happened to the Israelites who died there.
5: Okay. Well. Um, as far as the stoning, I think I, I'm going to take God's side on this.
0: <laughs> Only
4: because I see it from the perspective, like, this guy who was not God's anointed, he, has no, like, level of recognition. He's out doing something he knows he's not supposed to do and the rest of the community would thus suffer the the penalty for his sin. And so for God to say, okay, well, stone him because he wants to disobey and he wants to bring wrath on, I agree with that. Um, The high priest um, doing what they want. I I really don't know what unauthorized fire looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But Yeah, I I think there's an order as to how we should serve the Lord, um, especially if he makes very clearly um, rules and guidelines as to how we should do that. Yeah, I I would, he's God, I'm
0: dust. What if for our breaking of God's law and his holiness, which could be almost any sin you could imagine, you can make up whatever one you want, we were struck dead. Do we somehow feel insulated and safe from that? Would we freak out if it happened? Uh, is this all academic to us? Because it was so far away that we just think, "Oh, that was then." You know, those poor people. I'm glad I'm not one of those people. Jill, you want to jump in?
5: That was
1: exactly what I was going to say. Actually, I think it's kind of easy to sit here with these isolated
4: things and say, "Well, you know, David was meant to lead this nation, and God instead chose to be his son." And well, you know, this guy, yeah, he kind of did the wrong thing. But how many of us would not just? Burst forth into an outcry of rage if something like this happened to us. And we just break God's laws up. Right. We don't care about consequences. And we, I think we do feel a little
0: removed from something like this. Yeah, I think we rely so much on the picture of Jesus and his mercy and grace and all that stuff to the point where we don't even think about it. And actually, we would be outraged if God gave us what was justly due the penalty of any sin, you name. Uh, and that's why I don't want this to be academic because I think well, some of us are like too eager to explain this away, whereas if it happened in the midst of us now, uh, we'd be outraged. right?
4: Which is what brings me to something that's deeply troubling to me, which is the statement was made, it's okay that God's not there. I'm kind of attached to the idea of justice. I'm not okay with the statement that God's exempt from justice completely, and that's just how we say, oh, God doesn't have to be just. Is it okay that God did that? Oh, we can't ask that question because he's God, so he gets to do whatever
0: he wants. Why are those two words synonymous? Like, how could you ever equate God's justice with human fairness? I mean, just by definition alone, even if you didn't know what was behind door number one and what was behind door number two, like, behind door number one is God's justice, behind door number two is human fairness, and I don't even know what they are yet. I could tell you they're not the same thing without even looking at the definitions of either of them. Yes? Yes. What happens if he
3: did say, for all of us to go stone you just in case, and I just said, I don't want to do it, would I be killed?
0: I can't guarantee you'd be killed because obviously people have done all sorts of things and not been killed for it, right? I mean, you've sinned how many times in your life, in your life, right? Me too. So we can't guarantee that would be the outcome. But I would say I would hope all of you really knew for sure before you started to stone me that God (laughs) wanted that to happen. Um, that's a legitimate question. I mean, in this case, they seem pretty clear that he was talking to them. That's why I made sure to say, this is a quote from the Lord. They seem to be very clear on it. And there was no ambiguity, but that's a very good question that we're gonna come back to at the very end of our series. Randy. You know, all the people that seem favored in the Bible,
4: like they didn't get as harsh of a punishment, we all still have to answer for everything we did on judgment day.
0: But we don't know what that's gonna look like. I mean, and you mentioned the good intentions of human justice, I think, God sees the picture better than us. I mean, We don't know what his intentions are in the matter either. I mean, he had a reason for doing all of this, obviously. Okay, Julian. Um, I
2: just wanted to say that, you know, when God created his law, when he gave it to his people, um, he gave it to them with good intentions for their well-being. The fact that they chose not to follow it, when they chose not to follow it, that there are going to be consequences for that. But everything was with good intentions, like, like the whole Sabbath thing. It was like, you know, the Sabbath is for man you know, like, it, so that you can you can be rested, you can be, you know
0: I don't think that guy felt that well, way but I know is, but
2: I'm, I'm, I'm talking about oh, the what what law itself bad. like the law itself was given with good intentions you know, like, you know they were given with good intentions to set them apart, to make them more holy, to make them different, to, because he had a bigger plan for them, it was all done with this idea of good intentions for that.
5: Okay, Cormac, jump in I think in all of these examples what we have to look at is is what is, like, like we have to, like, first of all, take a step back and look at what is the purpose of Israel, what is the purpose of his people? I mean, God wasn't going around, like, striking people dead in other nations for, for sinning, but he was in the Israelite um, nation. What was his purpose and all that, like, in the big picture? Um, and I think one of his purposes was to reveal himself to other nations through Israel, and in doing so, like, Obviously, like, these rules couldn't do it on their own um, because I mean we're not perfect. Um, they weren't perfect. So there has to be very strict um, rules in order to like keep them functioning um, as an example for the rest of the nations like so that God can be revealed through through them. And so I think that that kind of puts um, to like, some kind of order. But at the same time, we do see examples of God like, showing mercy like when he do with David. Um, he deserved to die. Um, but God um, maybe had like a bigger purpose um, for David, and that went along with his ultimate purpose for Israel. So I mean, I think that just kind of puts a little bit of order, and not to not to say what specific things um, feel good to us or not. Okay, Heather.
0: Well, I just want to touch back with
6: what Rachel said, but also talking to this and like, I don't think it's okay that it comes down to God's not fair. I wrestle with that. The Psalms are full of that. Fighting with God. And it's perfectly okay to be like, God, I don't like your decision in this place. And I think he's okay with that. Like, I do respect <clears> him <throat> and I respect his holiness. But also at the same time, like, we have to realize that God is a good God. And that is my main struggle with my faith. I don't believe that all the time. I don't believe that God is a good God, that he wants my best. But then I have to lay back to the fact that it's not how I feel about it. It's what I believe. And I do believe that he's a good God, even if I struggle
1: with my emotions in that.
0: Okay. I'm going to take the last two comments and then move on. Monique? I
1: really like kind of like where Cormac went with that and I want to push back a little and say that I'm not so sure that the law was all about having good intentions as much as I think there was a bigger purpose. I think it was supposed to point towards something. I think it was supposed to point towards Christ. I think it was supposed to have symbolic meaning. I think it was Supposed to set Israel apart to reveal God to other nations, maybe the world at the time, um, and so where we see those layers of justice and mercy throughout the law, like when it, in terms of slavery or whatever, it does it does match up where Christ took it later, like it does. So I, I don't think it was necessarily for convenience or or good intentions or even just to rule, but there's something a lot bigger going on. And then just to touch upon like this is forever ago, but King David. You really do have to kind of look at the Old Testament as a whole. Because like I I took it upon myself to read through it. I'm still reading through it. And I would get really frustrated. I'm like, why isn't this addressed? Why isn't that addressed? But I realize a lot of it's just retelling of a story. It's telling what's happened. It's not condoning it one way or another. It's just saying how it went. And as far as King David's concerned, like where I felt God's justice, or at least that he acknowledges where he went wrong, is when he wanted to build the temple. And God's like, no. like You will not build my temple because there's blood on your hands. There's too much blood on your hands. You've murdered people. Like, he knew. He said, no, that's for your son to do. Like, you will not do this for me because I am holy and, like, you are not the one to do it. So you really do have to take it as a whole because God did take no. He might not have struck David down, but he did take no. And, and speaks about it kind of later
0: on. God wanted the guy with a thousand wives to build the temple. Instead.
1: Okay, yes, it's a whole other issue. <laughs> but I'm saying he things, like things he takes note, and, and that's like a, that's another issue. Maybe there's not blood on his hands.
0: He was God too busy. So, I, don't necessarily,
1: I don't necessarily think God condoned that either. So we have to look at, this is a true story event of things that happened. Not necessarily that God condoned those things.
0: Okay, Ray, you get the last comment.
4: These stories, taken independently of King David or whoever else, they're there for a reason. What are we supposed to learn from them? Because when Jesus taught, what I've read of what Jesus says, he gives an explanation for a command. But these have no explanation. I don't know what the lesson is supposed to be. And are we even supposed to look for a lesson or just say, this is
2: what happened?
0: Partly, you're right. There is a level of this where you say, this is what happened. Um, And much, much of the Old Testament is descriptive, not prescriptive. The thing that makes these passages a little bit more troubling is God's action is seen directly in them. right? So there's a lot of things. Like For example, I've made this statement over and over. If you see somebody like David killing a man and then sleeping with his wife, that's not meant for us to say, oh, the the Lord must condone that. That's actually just the opposite. But let me show you what's going on here a little bit. Because this is the tension we need to create so we can start to resolve it and learn something. Here's the first principle I want to put up. It appears that many of the times that we see God's action in this way, it is happening when he first is trying to make the point. The principle kind of is stated this way. First instances were punished more harshly than others. Do you think anybody else broke the Sabbath after the stick gathering guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see it all the time. I mean, it's one of the charges that's brought against the people, is that they're not keeping the Sabbath in certain ways. Are all of those people dying? No. So we could start struggling with fairness, or we could say, is something else going on here? Partly that may be to emphasize the point to begin with. If God announces a law and says, if you don't keep the Sabbath, to be my people, to be distinct, to be set apart, because I've commanded this, to follow my laws, Some people say that would be a larger problem than making an example. Now you may not buy this argument of people being punished more harshly is to set an example. But you must buy the fact that people are not always punished this harshly. So it seems that we can observe that it only happens a couple of times. And then it's almost like there's a backing off to make the point. So what you make of that observation is up to you. I would say... I. It's a good chance that God was trying to make a very clear point and show his holiness. Let me demonstrate it in these three stories really quickly. First of all, the one about the unauthorized fire, Moses was saying, I don't know what that looks like. Most people believe that what they were doing was offering a pagan version of a ritual in the tabernacle of the Lord. But here's what makes it so crazy. If you just back up a few verses, basically what's happening is they're dedicating the whole tabernacle, and it says in this verse starting in Leviticus 9, it goes back, it says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of eating. I mean, this is a very special place to enter. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all people fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and fat portions on the altar. This was a special time for them. The Lord is now basically saying, here's the symbol of me being in your midst. I'm going to actually send fire to consume the sacrifice that's there. And all the people see it and they all shout with joy. And they fall face down. The Lord is basically saying, I am in your midst. This is a very, very holy moment. And the next thing you read is two people who decide to offer a pagan sacrifice into the holy place where the Lord's glory has just descended and where His presence resides. Many of us think, oh, so what? I go to church all the time. It's presence is in there. Read Isaiah chapter six. Read what it's like to enter the Lord's actual presence when you are in a state of sin, and Isaiah knows right away what the consequence is. You're going to be annihilated. He says, "Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. Woe is me means I'm about to be annihilated. So, I'm not going to say this is going to solve every problem you have, but you have to put this into context. This is the dedication of the Lord, his glorious standing in this place, and these people decide, let's offer a pagan sacrifice in the midst of this. Now, we see lots of other people, including as the story continues. that You're going to see people trying to make like, mistakes in how they're supposed to worship the Lord, but it doesn't happen again. But boy, I bet you they were thinking about it. In fact, you see the worry later on in the story as to, well, is this the right way to do it or not? They take it totally seriously after that point. You go on just a little bit. Moses turns to Aaron, whose sons have just been (laughs) incinerated. And he says to him, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Aaron remains silent, it says basically saying this is what he told us that I am holy and you have to treat me as holy and your sons just basically walked in and profaned the altar where I am now, right now, have just been dedicated and I'm residing there and I think it's telling that that little little sentence really got me, Aaron remained silent he didn't cry out, he didn't do anything he just, it's almost like he knew and whoever was writing the scriptures for us in this point wanted us to point that out. It's like significant. He doesn't object. He doesn't cry out. I'm sure inside he's like, but he knew what the consequence was. He had just been through, if you read chapter nine all the way through, this long instruction of how they're supposed to treat the Lord's tabernacle. And he knew his sons didn't do that. Not just accidentally didn't do it, probably didn't do it in a way that was insulting to God's very presence in his name. Okay, let's look at another one. Let's go back to Uzzah and the Ark. I think David nailed it earlier. We read all this part here about what happened when he tried to study the Ark. But what we miss sometimes about the story is what was happening in the background? What happened here? You see, God had given them specific instructions on how to carry the Ark. Now, you might think, oh, so if you don't carry the Ark right, you die. Uh, That's kind of exactly the instructions that were given. You're supposed to carry it with poles. And God goes into just detail after detail to the point where he says the poles are not to be removed from the rings that they're in. Okay, how did this happen? There's something going on in this story that we miss when we read this. And of course, people who like to critique the scriptures zoom in right on the story of a guy trying to just study the ark. I mean, how could you blame him? Yeah, Uzzah didn't do anything wrong, I think, trying to study the ark in my mind, except that he's violating the Lord's command. The problem was all of Israel had done something wrong here too. They had allowed the ark to fall into the hands of the Philistines. They had allowed the ark to be taken, and they were not following what the Lord wanted it to do. The people who came up with the idea of putting the ark on a cart were the Philistines. Because when they had stolen the ark, city after city that they kept the ark in was struck with a plague of the Lord until finally they thought, there's just no way we can keep this thing. We've got to send it back to Israel. So let's send it to the Israelites. So they put it on a cart and they had these two oxen, I think it was. They just pull it. And they just said, let's just push this thing to the border and then just push it over the border to them. (laughs) We can't have this thing. When Israel, first of all, lost the ark, that was probably a huge insult to the Lord to begin with it. They carried it into battle to try to somehow charm the battle. It was clear that the Lord was not upon them or, or when they lost this battle. But the fact that it was profane in this way where they put it on an ark and send it back, the Israelites should have then taken it and treated it the right way. What happened was for the next 20 years it remained in this state. And here we see like David is learning nothing new. He's treating it the way that the Philistines treated. Again, you might say then why not strike him down? He's the one that came up with the whole ox cart plan. Why are we blaming this poor fellow who touched it? But again, I will tell you here's what happens next. After Uzzah is struck down, read the rest of it. Look how everybody's attitude towards the ark suddenly changes. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Like, I don't want it. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Giddite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him in his entire household. <laughs> Check this out, as if we're not all jealous of one another. Now, King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring <laughs> the ark of the God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. But notice how he brings it this time. When those who were carrying the ark... did we learn our lesson? Had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. It's interesting because after this happens, if you read further descriptions of what happens to the ark, it is treated like it is, holy. People believe that when Moses heard from the Lord, That the Lord resided where the wings of the cherubim kind of came together. That's that's literally where God was enthroned. Have you ever seen a picture of the ark? That God was in this holiness. This ark was holy. So to treat it that way, again, you might say, poor Uzzah. All he did was follow the king's instructions and thought if he dropped it, he'd be in worse trouble. But God was making a point. I wonder if he made more of a point in our midst today, how it would affect our callous attitude towards sin. I wonder if just occasionally he allowed that kind of thing to happen. If we would still just kind of nonchalantly accept the blood of Christ to wash away every sin so that we could just be free to commit more. Yes?
4: I think that's hard to say though because there are some people who say, Oh, 9-11 was God's punishment on us. Or, hey, that tsunami was God's punishment on Japan. <coughs> and that's it's a garbage.
0: It is garbage and the reason it's garbage is because in these cases you can see there's something happening, right? Like what would be the point of those things that you mentioned? What is the point of that? Like how would we get a clear message out of it? Now, if out of the voice of the tsunami we all heard something then I, okay, then I stand corrected. I'm just saying that in these cases there's a point being made and the point is often recorded in the scriptures you can see that they themselves suddenly change everything, and we're not speculating like, oh, I wonder if after Uzzah was struck down, like David somehow, Now we know that David took it more seriously. It go, this, it's the point of the story, in other words, to kind of remind us. So yeah, I think a lot of people can speculate, and I think it drives me nuts when people think they speak for God. In this case, God is speaking for God and telling us the purpose behind it. Now again, you still should struggle with it. Let me just comment briefly on this one. Again, I would think many people broke the Sabbath. We know from scripture they did. We don't have any other recorded instances of people being struck down for doing it. Uh, I consulted a lot of sources, try to figure out like, why do this? Most of them come to the same conclusion. God was deadly serious about the law. Deadly meaning that he wanted to punish with death as well. And he wanted to exhibit the fact that that could happen. Last week, Tiffany's mom who was here came up to me afterwards. She goes, I know why this happened. And I was like, okay, tell me, tell me why this happened. And she said, because these people, at least in the time that the book of Numbers was being read, like, these people had, d- had dwelled in a desert, had relied on God's provision, had been miraculously given to them by manna. And when he said, take the Sabbath and do not work and I will provide for you, they didn't trust him. They thought, no, 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 I'll do it for myself. I'll provide for my family. And she said, I really see God's hand in this. Okay, she's not alone. There are other people who see the exact same thing. This is an act of disobedience, not just of the law, but of God's provision, and it's a lack of faith in him. That might be part of it. And here's the last point I'm going to make tonight. This is not exclusive to the Old Testament. You Remember a year and a half ago, maybe it was two years ago, we did Ananias and Sapphira Sunday to kind of scare you into giving more money? Remember that? (laughs) The story of Ananias and Sapphira is the same story. It's found in the New Testament. If you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land. And they decided to withhold part of the money and not give it up. We said very clearly it's up to them to decide how much they want to give. There's nothing in the New Testament that says you have to give all your money. They decided how much they were supposed to give. But they lied. They lied and said this is the whole amount. And they withheld a part. Who were they lying to? The apostles? No, they were lying to God because the story pretty clearly says that Peter questions them and says to him, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. What was Ananias' penalty? He died instantly. And when they brought in Sapphira, who didn't know the story about what happened to her husband, they just brought her in, they questioned her, and she said, yes, that was the total price we gave you. We gave you the whole thing. She was struck dead. Think about that for a moment. How many people in our churches would be struck dead if they lied about their giving? (laughs) Most. How many people would be struck dead for the same type of sin? Why isn't that happening every day? Is the Holy Spirit not active in the churches? Is it a one-time deal? Maybe it was intended to make a point at the birth of the church, like at the birth of many of these movements, that God is deadly serious about what he lays down as the law but he might be merciful enough to let us get away with it until, as Randy says, we actually meet him at judgment and make a full account at that point. It's clear that if we were struck down for sinning, we'd all be dead. But we're still troubled by the fact that he's done it sometimes in a very public, recorded way in Scripture, and other times when we think it should have been laid down, it doesn't happen. I'm with Ray on this one. You've got to be a little bit troubled by what seems to be an inconsistency. But I'm only partly there. And next week we're going to figure out a little bit more together on the other answers people give as to how to resolve this. And then we're going to tumble into the subject of larger scale killings. Yes. I
1: mean, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's sometimes it's about perspective. So it's easy to be like, Lord, why did you kill this one person for doing this and disobeying this law that's so unfair, as opposed to, wow, we all deserve death and you killed that person? Thanks for not taking my life, or thanks for not applying that measure across the board. Like, sometimes it's like a matter of perspective.
0: I agree, and I don't think that I would have any lack of gratitude by saying to the Lord, I'm glad that you have not struck me down for the many things you could have done it for, right? Breaking the Sabbath, right? Adultery. According to Jesus' standard and others, you know, I'd be struck dead a hundred times. So I'm thankful for that. But that doesn't totally get us off the hook because we could be totally thankful and still, like Heather was saying, like the psalmist say, but I'm still bugged by this. Because you seem to be too harsh in these other areas if you're such a merciful God. It seems like those people didn't get it. Right? And you're right. It's perspective. Maybe I just am not getting what I deserve right? And they got what they deserve, and I should be totally thankful, but it still bothers us. Ben?
5: It's kind of going back to where you're saying, like, where God does something the first time, but then he doesn't seem to do it the second or third time. Um, I guess my question is, if God's showing mercy there, um, kind of what's the point of Christ's sacrifice if, like, even in the Old Testament, God can just show forgiveness? Or is it because of Christ's sacrifice that he can show mercy in the second
0: or third time? He doesn't have to wait till Christ's sacrifice to show mercy. In fact, he repeatedly shows mercy. But some people would say it's precisely to show the depth of his mercy. Like if you say, I could be struck dead for this, and I actually know a guy who was. Then when you're not struck dead, the view is you understand the depth of what you've been forgiven of. You understand the depth of the mercy the Lord has shown because you might say, Yeah, the Lord, and, and by the way, I don't mean you, I mean Christians today feel this way in my feeling. Hey, I'm forgiven of everything, so I don't even understand the depravity of my own sin. I don't understand the depth of how, go, how, how deep it is, and I certainly don't understand the depth of God's mercy to reach all the way down to save me from it or even to withhold his hand from it. But if I knew, like at the time of Ananias and Sapphira, that somebody had just been killed for lying to the Lord about their giving and I knew I had done the same, you better believe every single day I'd be thanking God that I was still alive. And I would have a new and fresh understanding of his mercy. I think that might be part of the point. Even in the Old Testament. Like even the next time you gathered sticks on the Sabbath and you caught yourself, you'd be like walking back to your tent like, like the whole time just thinking, oh, I'm so Sorry. If this troubles you, it should. Come back next week and I'll start showing you the different views that other people have that say, hey maybe this whole first in time thing is not the only way to understand it. You might not even like the other views, but at least you could hear what they are. uh, Because we'll be presenting them and then showing a couple more examples. Let me pray in humility uh, for what we've done. (laughs) Lord, we're in your presence and we don't understand the depth of your mercy. We don't understand how far it reaches to get to us, how much you've forgiven us for, uh, because we take too nonchalantly the sins in our lives. And maybe we need to stare into the face of a holy God who demands a standard we can't even comprehend before we understand and comprehend our own sin. Lord, maybe we'll only understand when we're standing in your presence and we see how far away our concepts of fairness, our concepts of sin are from where you are. And only then will it make sense. But in the meantime, put up with us, Lord, as we do these things in this room to try to understand you better. And turn them outward for other people, because I know there are people who are struggling with this. And maybe just something that we say, some idea that we glean here, will help someone else to get closer to you. pray this in your name. Amen.